What is up, Hardwin Ox listeners? I am Damp Valley coming at you with an unscheduled intro. And if I decide to post this on YouTube, which I have not decided whether or not I will do, you will tell it's unscheduled and that I'm on vacation. The background is different. I'm in a kitchen, so if the sound quality is poor, I apologize. Uh, but this wasn't scheduled. We're supposed to just be getting to these snackable podcasts, as I would call them, very short, you know, 12 to 16 minutes long, where we get into the biggest what-if moments um, from people I polled about each franchise. But we have the news um, that Robert Sarver was suspended by the NBA for a year from the Phoenix Mercury and the Phoenix Suns organizations, and I thought it was – uh, important to at least address that. I'm going to try and spend not too much time on it because there's enough people that look like myself talking about this, but I also think it's important that we we don't ignore it. And so Robert Sarver has been suspended um, by the NBA for a year. Basically, it means when you go into the details of it, he can't be around the Mercury of the Suns for the, for the next year. He's also been fined $10 million, which is the most that the NBA can fine him. And he must complete a training program focused on respect and appropriate conduct in the workplace. This is something the NBA announced. Uh, in addition, the Suns organization themselves has to um, go through other steps during this time and beyond. There's going to be a three-year period where they have to conduct um, surveys, um, routine surveys about their workplace culture. They're going to have to send reports to the NBA. They're going to have to undergo, uh, it seems like, a more rigid um evaluation process from the outside um, to hire an outside firm to to do so um this is all to say that this is a slap on the wrist for robert robert sarver and it's just absolutely inexcusable um when you're really considering it i don't know what the right i don't even want to say i don't know what the right outcome would be but if this is not evidence enough to get him to force to sell the team or out of the nba i know that the other governors have to vote on this but i don't I don't understand how this isn't enough. And when I tweeted about it, um, I got a few DMs about how this is legal mumbo jumbo, that there's not actually any evidence. Um, this is, I'm not trying to single any one person out because I got a few of them, but this is, that's, if that's your first response, like that just shouldn't be your first response here. Um, in the NBA's release, it says that he engaged in instances of inequitable conduct toward female employees and repeated um, a racial epithet the n-word on at least five occasions but that this is not motivated by racial or gender-based animus which is racial or gender-based hostility so just to recap there he there are documented instances of him engaging in repeating the n-word at least five times a racial epithet and also just inequitable conduct toward female employees in general, but that is somehow not <laughs> evidence um, or a pattern of behavior that shows racial or gender-based hostility. Like, come the fuck on already. Like, this is just absolutely gross. And when you can phrase it like that, they the full report is available. And I would, in, I don't, I don't want to say I would encourage you to go download it if you don't want to have to read it. I don't know how young you are listening to this podcast. I totally get it. Um, but the full report is available. There's also the ESPN report that is out there, and like. This is like this is damning stuff. It says in the report when you go through it that over 100 individuals witnessed Sarver's statements or actions that violated applicable standards. That this was a route, the conduct, by the way, was consistent over the period. So we're talking about 100 people witnessed this from Sarver. And 
this is you dig into more of the gritty details of this. Sarver apparently said the N-word at least five times in repeating or perpeting to repeat what a black person said. Four of those occasions, four were done after being told by both black and white subordinates that he should not use the N-word, even repetition of another. This isn't, I'm not, I wouldn't even defend it. I want to make it clear if this was a one-off after the one-off. Four times, four times after he was told, informed, educated on how he shouldn't be using it. That's a pattern of behavior. That's also a pattern of choice, not inadvertent behavior or ignorance. Um, and then Sarver used language and engaged in conduct demeaning of female employees. Among examples, he told a pregnant employee that she would be unable to do her job upon becoming a mother, berated a female employee in front of others, and then commented that women, women cry too much, and arranged an all-female lunch so that female employees at Western Alliance Bank, where at the time he was CEO, could explain to female son's employees how to handle these demands. That is fucking disgusting and disgraceful. How is this only enough to get your slap on the wrist? And look, $10 million sounds like a lot of money on paper. Robert Sarver is estimated to be worth $400 million. This is 2.5% of his net worth. It's a drop in the bucket. The Suns are worth $1.8 billion themselves. Oh, and hey, by the way, he gets to work with the league and the Suns in appointing an interim governor while he's gone. So he's suspended, but he's still going to help appoint the person who's going to be the, the front person for this team, or however you want to phrase it. That's not a real punishment. That's a slap on the wrist. Um, they did say that he cooperated with the investigate uh, investigation, excuse me, only to then contest the punishment that was handed down. I mean, he was going to contest any punishment that was handed down, but he also has to understand and is probably just, you know, internally implicitly has to be pretty happy about how this turned out because this is a favorable outcome for him. Yeah. There's going to be a stain on the organization and, and on his reputation, but this is a slap on the wrists in the grand scheme of things. And, my heart breaks, goes out to um, anyone who is impacted by this, the people who broke non-disclosure agreements to be part of the interviewing process, to be part of the initial ESPN report, to those that were simply just berated by Robert Sarver or sexually, verbally, racially harassed by him or disrespected at this point, however it needs to be, be phrased. This is just like, and this isn't just a, it's not a one-off instance. It's not a couple of instances. Um, even in the report, it says over 50 current and former employees reported that Sarver frequently engaged in demeaning and harsh treatment of employees, including by yelling and cursing at them that on occasion constituted bullying under workplace standards. It's across the moral spectrum here. This is not just, oh, okay, we'll use the N-word once or twice. And I'm not trying to downplay what that would mean. He shouldn't be using it at all. It's not, oh, there was one case of this where he berated a female or, um, yeah, I mean, like the other stuff, Ben Golliver treated out um, some of the rest that was attached to the report where he's dancing, you know, pelvic um, pelvis to pelvis with a guy at a holiday party. And I'm assuming that that was based off the way that Golliver had it in his tweets, um, that that was a clearly unwarranted advance. Um, he talked about sexual act and condoms at all employee meetings. He told a blowjob story in a business meeting. He told a female employee, you've never seen anything this big while preparing to take a shower at the team facility. Um, 
He emailed pornography to a small group of male employees. He dropped his underwear unnecessarily while a male employee was performing a fitness check on him. He danced pelvis to pelvis, was the quote, with male employees at a holiday party. He asked a female employee if she got an upgrade, referring to a breast augmentation. He told a pregnant employee, like I said before, that he couldn't um, that she couldn't continue an assignment because her baby needs their mom, not their father. This is like this is not you don't get to excuse Robert Sarver's behavior because he's like some 60 something old old white dude. And this is how it's always been like this stuff has happened recently. It's happened in not so distant past. It's happened after he's been warned by people who worked for him or work with him. This is just absolutely disgusting, and the NBA failed here to give out an adequate punishment. And you can argue that, well, short of him being forced out, would there have been an adequate punishment? And is that fair to hold the NBA to a standard where we only would have accepted one outcome? And even once they were dealt or doled out that outcome, we would have said, well, this is the NBA being reactive, not proactive, just like Donald Sterling all over again. You can say all that. That doesn't change the fact that that really was the only acceptable outcome when you're reviewing all this. The fact that he's still going to be allowed long-term to control an NBA team. The fact that now his punishment, aside from the financial fine and having to undergo classes, is going to be he'll, he'll be away from the team while probably players and staff members now have to deal with the fallout from this. That is going to be hanging over the franchise. That's going to be hanging over the players' heads. And I don't buy into the fact that they – I don't – I don't want to see this being spun as, oh, they use this as a galvanizing point amongst themselves, but that's what they need to do. No, you know what? The players don't need to do fucking anything because it's not on them um, what he did in years past and present. Like, this is on Robert Sarver, and the fact that the Suns organization is now associated with this, uh, anybody who enabled him, and that includes the NBA now, like, this is just absolutely inexplicable, and I can't believe it. And all I have are sort of these... Um, I have given it thought. This is something that happened. The news broke a few hours ago and I was on the move. I wasn't going to be able to record and I didn't want to drop an emergency podcast on this. I did see Zach Lowe had some really good uh, comments about it on the, the NBA show or whatever that's called for ESPN. Now the timeline pod released a, a really good episode on this as well. I encourage you go over and listen to that from them. Um, so I have thought on it, but I don't have anything to offer other than like, this is just fucking unacceptable. And I just want to curse over and over again, because it just makes me so, so freaking angry that the evidence is right there. We're talking about, okay, well, you know, if you want to argue that was this on video or were there recordings or was there trace history of emails? Like I have, there was physical evidence. Like you could just, there was physical evidence of some sort that had to be there. And the fact that there's a hundred people who witnessed this and that it seems like at least 50 current and for, former employees who came forward. Like this isn't, this is, this is not like a miss. This is, this is just not a miss. Like there's no way to spin this as Robert Sarver got what he deserved. No, Robert Sarver got off easy here and the NBA just, it missed it whiffed. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. Robert Sarver should be ashamed of himself and anyone who's supporting him or coming back with, well, actually should be ashamed of themselves. Like this is, you can argue that this was a no win outcome and that's fine. Like there doesn't need to be winners here, but there does need to be justice. And this just isn't fucking it. And what is the, what is the bar then to hold these team governors to? Is it Donald Sterling? Like that's the, that's the, that's rock bottom. Like it has to be that he's caught on tape using racial slurs um, over and over again, like in such a derogatory manner that's the only way you're going to be able to force him out. Um, and then in part also, it's not, we're not just talking about a hostile workplace with him, but he was just this known slumlord basically. And so that was always floating around the NBA. And look, these stories have been floating around the NBA for a while as reporters and other podcasters have hinted at. So like it, that can't be like, 
the Donald Sterling thing can't be rock bottom. Are we supposed to view that as an anomaly? Where this is, you know, I would argue we're talking about a pattern of since 2004, I think, since he bought the team. It's like almost two decades. I think you can argue, I'm not saying it's worse. It's on the same scale. Like this is on the same scale of what Donald Sterling was doing. And why is Robert Sarver here getting off easy? Is it because the team governors wouldn't support pushing him out? I, I honestly don't know. I haven't seen anything about that. Um, but just digging into the report, like actually opening the report, not even reading the tweets that were out there. And the one that stuck with me is still the story from, and I think I've mentioned it a couple of times now, it's still the story from that initial ESPN report. Among the others that stuck with me is him just telling a pregnant son's employee who was helping coordinate the, 20, uh, the 2009 NBA All-Star game in Phoenix that she wouldn't be able to continue in that role. Like the fact that he, like, this is just, it, it just so, it's not even just, I think ESPN frames it as inappropriate and out of line. It's just grotesque. It's immoral. And he's, he's getting away with it. That's what I just want to double down on and reemphasize. He is getting away with it. If he's allowed to stay in control of the sun's term, which in, in, by all indications, it seems like he will be. And so that's the final note here is that the NBA, um, they fucked up here and I, they should collectively just be ashamed of, of itself and the, the quote unquote punishment slap on the wrist, tap on the wrist that they just handed down to what legitimately seems like a terrible human being who didn't learn anything over the course of nearly two decades. Um, We'll get now to anyone. If you had to skip this, I understand, uh, but uh, I'll just leave it at that. And we'll get into what if moments we're beginning with the Atlantic division is the podcast that I think you're about to hear. And so I will talk to you all soon. What is up fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with what is going to be the big long awaited. What if project? For the Hardwood Knox podcast. Very quickly, before I explain to you what it is and what you're going to watch in the forthcoming clip, please remember to subscribe to this YouTube channel. If this is your first time checking us out. Like and comment on our videos. Help the algorithm love us back. It means a lot. Your subscription is the most important thing. Hit that subscribe button. And again, it will genuinely mean the world. So very quickly, before we get into this, the, the What If Project was I pulled people who cover, root for, intimately follow every team. All smart people who know what they're talking about. About their biggest what if for that franchise. And so we're going to get into their response. This is a, something that I worked on for Bleacher Report. You can check out the full project. Um, the link is in the description, but these will be released in single team clips over the course of two weeks as we get to every single team. If you enjoy it again, like, comment, subscribe. It means a ton. And also let us know your biggest what if for, for your team if you're onto that video in the description. I'll also include a link to the full playlist. But again, these will be releasing over the course of two weeks. So come back and and check to see if your team has been posted, if it hasn't been already. Without further ado, let's get to another NBA what if. Up next, we will do the Atlantic division, the five teams in there. And so that means that we will begin with the Boston Celtics. Legacy franchises are always inundated with what if moments, if only because they've been around so long that they have to accumulate them. The Boston Celtics, though, are teaming with what might have been and roads not taken in the not-so-distant past. What if they never traded down in the 2017 draft? Would they really still have taken Jason Tatum at number one? What happens if Isaiah Thomas never suffered a career-altering hip injury? Or hell, what if they never traded for Thomas in the first place? What if Gordon Hayward never suffered his dislocated ankle and fractured leg? Or Kyrie Irving never left? What if they had been the team that traded for Paul George or for Kawhi Leonard? 
the list of options over the past seven seasons or so is like endless. But because I'm a monster, I forced Alex Kungu, who's been on the podcast many times before and also does uh, now and again give musings over at Hoop Island or at least used to, I forced him to narrow it down. He chose the Anthony Davis transaction that never was. At the time of AD's trade request, Alex told me, the Celtics were towing the line between two timelines. On one side, they had Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, and Al Horford, who were a versatile trio that, with the acquisition of Davis, would give them the necessary star talent to compete for a title. On the other side, they had Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, a young, talented group with a proven ability to play winning basketball, but still a few years away from being called on to compete for a title. Though nothing was ever official, there was an understanding that all or at least Tatum plus one of the two would be involved in any Davis trade when Boston was legally allowed to make one because of the rule with extensions and Kyrie Irving and Anthony Davis. Fast forward three years, Alex continued, and Kyrie has left but struggled with staying on the court. Hayward has been similarly plagued with injuries, and Davis, though he won a ring in his first year with LA, has endured durability issues as well. For a second, Alex said, imagine a world where Boston would have to watch Smart develop into a floor general, defensive player of the year caliber point guard, Jalen turn into an all-star, and Tatum, a top 10 player, all while they hitched their wagons to the injury-riddled veterans who either couldn't stay on the court or were already plotting their way out of town. God bless Rich Paul and the Clutch Sports organization. Me personally, this is Dan. I'm LOLing at that last line. I hope you are too. The Brooklyn Nets. Many will gravitate to the Brooklyn Nets trading their entire future for an aging Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce in 2013. But this organization has delivered bulletin board material in droves just over the past few years alone. Most of it isn't good. Getting Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in 2019 was seen as a coup. It has instead fomented an avalanche of missed possibilities. What if the organization didn't capitulate to its stars so thoroughly that it forced Coach Kenny Atkinson out the door? What if it didn't trade for James Harden? What if Kyrie had taken the COVID-19 vaccine? Would Harden still be in Brooklyn? Would Durant have never requested a trade and then never rescinded, rescinded said trade request? What if the Nets simply didn't acquiesce to Harden's own trade request this past season? None of these options ended up winning out for the Daily News' Christian Winfield, who rightfully chose KD's could have been a three from Game 7 of the 2021 semifinals. Uh, semifinals. This is what he wrote to me. Talk about a franchise-altering shot that ends up taking the game into overtime instead of sending the Milwaukee Bucks packing. If KD's foot wasn't on the line, the Nets would easily dispose of the Hawks in the conference finals and then get to the NBA finals against a well-oiled but not nearly as talented Phoenix Suns team. They also, as I reported would have gotten a somewhat healthy Spencer Dinwiddie back in the NBA Finals. If KD's toe hadn't been on the line, Christian continued, we're looking at the Nets as NBA champions. We're looking at James Harden maybe deciding to stay and sign long-term. We're looking at validation of the decision to bring KD and Kyrie to Brooklyn in the first place instead of now perpetually fielding questions as to whether it was the right move given the Nets have come up short in three straight seasons. And if KD's foot wasn't on the line, we're looking at the Nets giving New York City its first NBA championship since the 1970s. We're looking at the Nets as basketball immortality instead of watching them devolve into mere morals, mortals in a first-round sweep by the Celtics this past season. For what it's worth, to me, this is Dan, we're also probably looking at a Milwaukee Bucks team coached by someone other than Mike Budenholzer, something that kind of falls by the wayside of that Kevin Durant shot. But yeah, this, this I think, accurately beats out anything else, and the prospect of a championship always does. Next up is the New York Knicks. Think of an NBA season over the past four decades. 
any NBA season. The New York Knicks probably have a what-if moment, transaction development, whatever, from that year. What if they didn't negotiate against themselves in the Carmelo Anthony trade in 2011? What if they never dealt for Andrea Bargnani during the 2020, 2013 offseason? What if Amari Stoudemire's health never implodes? What if they don't sign Stat in the first place? What if Steph Curry falls one pick lower? What if Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving join the Knicks rather than the Nets? What if Michael Jordan left Chicago for New York in 1996? What if Patrick Ewing's knees never implode? The list goes on and on and on. Kudos to Knicks Film School's Jonathan Macri with a major assist from KFS's producer extraordinaire, Andrew Claudio, both of them friends of the podcast, for winnowing it down. This is what John Macri wrote. My number one what if harkens back to 1987 and New York's decision to part ways with Bernard King. King, for those younger fans who may not be familiar, was for a time perhaps the best player ever to suit up for the Knicks. In the 1983-84 season, he finished second to Larry Bird in MVP voting, and he was just getting started. After averaging 26 points per game in 83-84, King was putting up nearly 33 per night in 1984-85. That's when tragedy struck, and he tore his ACL in March 1985, which would keep him out for two years. By the time he returned, the franchise had received a somewhat significant talent upgrade in the form of Patrick Ewing. Unfortunately, when King returned to play six games at the tail end of the 1986-87 season, Ewing himself was sidelined. Nick's brass never saw them share the same court, but nonetheless decided to move on from King despite him having just turned 30. It turned out to be a big mistake. King caught on with Washington, steadily building his scoring average back up over the next four seasons, from 17 to 20 to 22, and then all the way up to 28 per game in the 1990-91 season, a feat that resulted in an all-star berth and selection to the All-NBA third team. New York, meanwhile, was wasting the talents of Ewing, who had just finished with consecutive top five MVP finishes, not to mention Mark Jackson, the 1988 Rookie of the Year, who made an all-star team in his second year, and the newly acquired Charles Oakley. They were good, but not quite good enough, with a glaring need for a scoring wing in place of sub-elite talents like Gerald Wilkins, Johnny Newman, and Kiki Vandeweghe. King would have been a perfect fit, perhaps even good enough to make the difference against the Bulls in a 1989 second-round defeat that turned out to be Rick Pitino's last games as Knicks head coach. Ultimately, this isn't a perfect what-if, because King's return was short-lived thanks to another knee injury in 1991. Still, the greatest question in franchise history will always be what Ewing would have been able to do with a true running mate. We nearly had the answer, Macri wrote, but unfortunately, Knicks fans will always be left guessing. I agree with him. I think I probably would have went with a bunch of other stuff in that. Maybe what if they had amnestied uh, Amari Stoudemire, myself, or even the Bargnani one kind of still eats at me. There are a couple of draft day decisions. What if they drafted Shea? What if they drafted Halliburton to sort of stay in the the recent past? But I think Mac Richo is the, the right one for sure. The Philadelphia 76ers are up next. Recent history is drowning in Philadelphia 76ers what ifs. Bleacher Report, Brian Toporek, went with the one that cast a pale over the organization in real time and after the fact. This is what he wrote to me. Given the trickle-down effects, I have to go with the Sixers trading up to the number one overall pick in 2017 and taking Markel Fultz over Jason Tatum. We don't need to rehash the Fultz saga in Philadelphia, and ironically, it might wind up having a happy ending for the Sixers. They sent him to Orlando for a top-20 protected first-round pick, which they used to select Tyrese Maxey. But with Tatum already looking like a top-10 player, Tapora continued, presumably with tears in his eyes, by the way, guys. It's impossible not to wonder what a core of Tatum and Joel Embiid could have accomplished over the next decade. If the Celtics go on to win a title with Tatum and Jalen Brown, the Sixers will likely regret this decision more than anything else during the process era. 
it's a testament to Maxi's ascent for me, Dan, that this no longer feels like the only option. Also, Fultz was almost universally considered the top prospect in the 2017 class. So can we even be sure that the Celtics would have taken Tatum at number one if they didn't trade the pick? And where was Tatum on the Sixers' board at the time? Would they have taken him if they stayed at number three? And there are just other potential nominees that come at you in spades. What if Jimmy Butler doesn't leave in 2019 free agency? What if Kawhi Leonard misses? That's all you need to hear. What if Ben Simmons doesn't pass out of the caps lock layup? What if, what if the Sixers traded Simmons sooner? What if that Simmons trade takes place while retaining Butler? What if Sam Hankey never leaves? And what if, this is Toporek actually reminded me of this, they don't trade Mikael Bridges on draft night in 2018. And what if Embiid doesn't miss the first two years of his career? And what if he's not banged up beyond comprehension this past postseason in 2022? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Sixers are just chock full of recent what-ifs. Next team up is the Toronto Raptors. For a franchise with a fairly significant amount of prominent what-ifs, the Toronto Raptors' selection felt shockingly singular while I was doing this. So I asked Yasmin Duale of the Dishes and Dimes podcast, as well as the Wal- Walrus. This is what she wrote to me. I'd say that the biggest what if, the most pivotal hypothetical for the Raptors would be Kawhi Leonard remaining on the team. His brief stint culminated in a championship. The framework for the, for the team would have remained relatively strong heading into the following season. And that Raptors team likely would have dominated a bubble postseason run considering the competition of the 2019-2020 campaign. Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet have improved tremendously since that run. And some Raptors fans believe that under Leonard's leadership, they might have had the makings of an NBA dynasty. This is me speaking again. I'm not a Raptors fan. I really do agree with Yasmin here. Toronto played a big role in unmaking, or at least pausing, the Warriors dynasty. The league's title hierarchy has lacked the same inevitability ever since. That Raptors core would have received a fair shake at maintaining the chief juggernaut throne, especially given how things have turned out for the supposed-to-be-inevitable Nets. Plenty of other moments scattered through Toronto's history qualify for consideration here as well. What if the Kyle Lowry-DeMar DeRozan core ever busted through LeBron James? What if Vince Carter leaves Toronto under better circumstances? Or not at all. What if Chris Bosh never bolts from Miami? Is there an alternate reality where Tracy McGrady stays? Nominating negatives like what if the Raptors never traded for Kawhi is something I've staunchly avoided throughout the entire process. Relative to the sentimental value held by DeRozan, though, I do think it's a fair question. Duale also wondered what the complexion of Raptors history would look like had they poached team president Masai Ujiri during the Bosch era. That is something that I didn't even fathom, and it would be just absolutely mind-melting. That does it for the Atlantic Division what-ifs. Let me know if you're a fan of this team or just follow the NBA in general what your biggest what-if for any of these franchises would be. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume it. And as usual, until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, Frank Nielakina.